This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. I'm Amber Hamill, the Community Media Coordinator at Free FM. And I'm Murdoch Ngaho, Māori Media Coordinator at Free FM. I'm not a journalist. I am not a journalist. I'm from Aotearoa. I'm from Australia. I don't know much about foreign ministry, but I do know the Minister for Foreign Affairs. I don't know much about the Minister for Foreign Affairs, but I might know a little bit about foreign ministry. I mean, a bit. Like, not heaps. We've got a new show coming to Free FM about foreign ministry. Localising. Global. Aotearoa. It's got to be interesting because we've got the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Call it what you like. We've got the talent. Okay, here we are again with another episode of our corridor with the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Nanai Mahuta. She joins us again. Kia ora, Minister. Kia ora, kia ora. And of course, Amber's here. Today we're going to come a little closer to home. Whose home? Our home, okay. the Pacific, and our relationship, our cousins, with our cousins across the Pacific. A close relationship it is too, right, Minister? Yes, very much so. Who was the closest relationship that we have with in the Pacific? When we talk about the Pacific, that's a big, it's big pretty big area. So who, who, are the, who are our closest partners? Well, we have realm country uh, responsibilities for the Cook Islands, Tokelau and Nui. Can you just rub... Roll that back. What's a realm responsibility? Um, It means that we have a special, enduring and close relationship and a responsibility for. Um, So there's the whole of the Pacific, the Polynesia part of the Pacific, um, and within that, the realm countries, so New Zealand's extra obligations, I think, to those countries are really important. That's the simplest way I can put it. But also we've got whakapapa connections. If we mm. think about, you know, our our ancestors travelling from Hawaii uh, through um, Melanesia uh, and into Polynesia, our connections go from, you know, through Fiji, um, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, Tahiti, Hawaii, you know, there's all those kind of ancient navigational connections as well. And then when we think of our diaspora communities uh, here in New Zealand, I think our biggest population are the Samoan community uh, and then the Cook Island community. And obviously we have a significant Tongan community and smaller um, groupings of uh, Tokelau, uh, Kiribati, um, Tuvalu, Nauru, um, all here in New Zealand. So, yeah, our connections are many. Mm. Um, they're ba- based on ancient connections, but also more contemporary connections. And let's face it, our households are becoming a lot more mingled. <laughs> <laughs> mingled with Polynesian uh, sprinkles all the way around. Blended, blended family. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just get browner. <laughs> It's the way of the future. <laughs> Talking about the future, if we are to project maybe in the next 50 years, 
What do you find or what do you think are the biggest challenges for our Pacific nations? I think our biggest challenge really is, uh, you know, climate change will inevitably be the challenge. Uh, but when we think of um, economic deprivation and what that then means for countries in the Pacific, you know, more of their people travelling elsewhere to find work, um, the Pacific economy largely relies on remittances so you know but but if you're earning if you're in Australia or New Zealand sending money home Mm. um, and the fragility of the um, uh, many of the Pacific nations in terms of their reliance on uh, ODA overseas development assistance and the nature of that assistance New Zealand often gives a lot of our assistance by way of grants um, but countries like China they use financing so it creates, creates another layer of dependency. So, you know, lot, lots of challenges for the Pacific for the next 50 years, but it has to be climate change. When you're looking across the Pacific at kind of those, I mean, we're talking about a huge array of nations all with their own aspirations and um, values. How How is it kind of managing all those conversations at once and what kind of forums are there for us all to talk to each other? That's a really good question. I mean, the forums across the Pacific, um, their regional architecture, I guess, of forums. Regional architecture. That's the yeah, phrase yeah, I was looking yeah, for. I'm going to use that more often yeah, now. Yeah. Write that down. Okay. I better write it down too. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, uh, they have the Pacific Island Forum, which is a forum where all the Pacific uh, leaders from the Micronesian states, um, Palau, Marshall Islands, uh, you know, those countries, uh, then Melanesia, Papua New Guinea, Solomon, Vanuatu, and then into Polynesia, and that's the the Pacific Islands we know. All the across the Pacific, all the leaders participate in the Pacific Island Forum. They have a secretariat that is based in Fiji, and they meet in, intermittently and set key, I guess, priorities that they want to progress um, across the region. It's also a forum where they can bring up their concerns, but you know, right now the pressing concern uh, is around uh, everybody believing in the intent and purpose of the forum. Um, so there's that. Um, there's a, the Fisheries um, uh, Federation who look after the uh, the the joint fisheries interests across the Pacific. The you know it's got a significant tuna fishery um, interest. I think the largest in the world, but also we've probably got health-wise one of the healthiest kind of oceans, mm. um, and so a lot of countries rely on the uh, way in which fisheries, deep sea fisheries, are managed because that's where they get a lot of their income. But I guess that health and that fisheries kind of interests, they they can't be, you know, there's a guardianship and a history of guardianship of the oceans in these in the Pacific and you don't have healthy fisheries if you're not taking care of your oceans, right? That, that's right and they have a very strong ethic around what sustainable fishing looks like in the deep sea area. Right, and a huge wealth of knowledge about how to achieve that. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people see the Pacific as a whole lot of little islands dispersed throughout this big ocean mass. The Pacific view, the Pacific is a Pacific blue continent. Right. So the ocean 
actually connects rather than separates separate from, from here. Yeah. And so, and that goes to other things like the way they think about the ocean is like the way we think about land. Mm-hmm. The health of the ocean is as important as the health of the land. It sustains the health of the people. So all of that's infused into the way that they look at fisheries management, um, maritime boundaries, but also why climate change is such a big issue for them because sea level rise and the impact on their countries and what that then means in terms of the nature of the networked relationships across the Pacific. Those are real present issues uh, for, for Pacific nations. New Zealand has a seat at tables that other Pacific nations don't necessarily have. And so what is New Zealand's role in terms of not speaking on behalf of, but speaking in support of, I would say, our Pacific neighbourhood? Yeah, New Zealand does have a role because we are in and of the Pacific. Our primary role is to ensure that we don't become a proxy for the Pacific. Exactly. And I think you have to be really mindful as a, as a larger country by comparison that you don't become that proxy. No. So, um, but we are mindful that as we take our voice to issues around ocean acidification and I don't know, things in the, the things to do with fisheries and, and the like, that we open the door and we just create an entry point for the Pacific voice to either come through um, directly or for it to be recognised. Um, so I think that's a that's the role New Zealand can play and should be playing a lot. Is it concerning, I mean, I know that our job isn't to go in and tell other nations how they should be doing business, but is it a bit concerning knowing that China plays a long game and their investment in the Pacific Islands and across the Pacific? Yeah, well, China does play a long game and that's part of its strength Mm. uh, because it has an enduring set of interests which it doesn't matter. They don't have to deal with changing governments and things like that and kind of map out their direction and and what they want to achieve in terms of influence. In the sense that New Zealand is aspiring to a values-driven foreign policy, arguably... So is China. Uh, yes, in many ways, yes. Um, the the difference between China and New Zealand is we have democratic elections, which yeah. kind of leave, different values, leave the interpretation of how to implement values in a very consistent way up to a very kind of um, you know a different t- um, tenure, a different cycle. Uh, but when you think about the Belt and Road Initiative for China, that is a long game. Right. You know? yeah. um, when you think about the uh, the people strategy around making sure that they're providing opportunities for Pacific nations, uh, peoples to study in China and learn uh, Mandarin, that is a long game right. because equally so, Chinese are learning Samoan. Yeah. You know, uh, and so that's a real... You know, there's a real... That's a cultural exchange. Yeah, it's a cultural exchange based on people. Right. Um, and it is, and they, they absolutely are playing the long game. So I don't think this is a matter of trying to negate China's approach. However, in key areas where it perhaps doesn't aid the Pacific aspiration, that is where it needs to be identified. So, we, you know, I've identified in the area of... Um, uh, ODA, Overseas Development Assistance. Um, we have a different approach. We provide grants. We're moving into supporting uh, longer resilience type projects. Um, 
China finances projects and right. creates debt yeah. and a debt trap and a debt burden. Um, and those are things we need to talk about as we consider what are the long are in the long term interests of the Pacific. So the cultural exchange is valuable, but we can't get away from that power imbalance. Ultimately, really, it's reflected very differently. You talked about democratic elections and that being a difference between China and New Zealand, but I'm interested to think about democracy and those democratic functions across the Pacific and how New Zealand supports those to be strong and resilient. Well, I mean, we try and ensure that uh, the Pacific can lean into some of our contexts where it's applicable, but we absolutely respect the mana of each uh, Pacific nation as it defines its democratic basis and its institutions the constitutional nature of its institutions. Mm. Um, we're seeing, um, as we speak, uh, matters unfold in terms of the most recent democratic elections in Samoa. Yeah. Right. You know, and uh, after a steady leadership of 23 years, Samoa's not really had to, uh, to, I guess, grapple with a transition to a new government yeah. and what that means. And that's what we're seeing now. So New Zealand doesn't come across as having all the answers around how democracy works. We uphold core values and principles around democracy, but the the distinguishing factor for New Zealand is more and more our foundation, which is the Treaty of Waitangi, is becoming interwoven into the fabric of expectation of what our democracy starts to look and feel like. And so that's slightly different from uh, what's uh, across in the Pacific. There seems to be something that creates a more stable foundation for those institutions in New Zealand than uh, amongst some of our neighbours. And I'm wondering, would you put that down to the treaty? Where do you think that stability is drawn from? I think because we have a long legacy within New Zealand of uh, open and transparent democracy and that we make sure that the institutions that uphold uh, that that approach um, are robust Obviously our judiciary, the way that that works, our parliament and all the aspects around that, the way the government and the executive works and then it's the public sector. So there are various elements to ensuring that you have an open and transparent democracy that you make sure over time that you lean into those aspects to strengthen it. Unsurprisingly, I would see a role for the media in that upholding those institutions. And in terms of accountability, it's maybe not difficult to be transparent, but it's difficult to be seen to be transparent if you don't have a media to kind of highlight or question that. Well, thank you for reminding me about that. The fourth estate is a very key part of the open and transparent element of uh, democracy and having access to information to be able to provide a balanced view of what's happening um, across a number of domains. Then you've got various kind of institutional aspects of, you know, an ombudsman, um, right. the Official Information Act, leg- bits of legislation that, again, help the Fourth Estate and others to maintain that transparency. I think that's what I see. The role uh, New Zealand's media plays in... Um, highlighting issues of democracy and governance within the Pacific um, to the diaspora, obviously, of those nations, but also as part of our neighbourhood. Our democracy can only be as healthy as... We need the whole population to be healthy, if you see what I mean. So I guess I would ask, do you see that that role for New Zealand in the Pacific neighbourhood as a core function of, of one of the things New Zealand can provide to that access 
can and do in some ways. I think about Radio New Zealand um, and its specific um, broadcasters, TV New Zealand as well, our, um, and how they ensure that we have um, you know, correspondents who are over in the Pacific reporting back to New Zealand um, and also making those um, live link opportunities. Digital technology has really opened up. Mm. Uh, the prospect of more collaboration amongst our media outlets in ways that we would never have thought possible. But what it also does is it broadens the base of perspective on issues that uh, that we might have otherwise jumped to our own conclusions based on our own set of assumptions and values or potential prejudices about things that are happening. Some was a good example, the current situation. I think you need a cultural lens to actually read through what we're hearing through um, some media to be able to gain a full appreciation of what the challenge mm. uh, is that they're working through as they move um, through this period. I suppose where I was going with China's influence, potentially we could get to a situation, or maybe I'm wrong, where, and I'm talking about the Cook Islands and their investment in the Cook Islands, could it ever get to a state where they're so far in debt that New Zealand would have to play banker in bailing them out. Yeah, I mean, with COVID as well, COVID's created some real challenges for countries with who are reliant on tourism and closed borders. So there are, no doubt, a lot of vulnerabilities being felt um, by countries who uh, whose economy relies on tourism during the COVID period. Mm. So but this is a challenge of the now, is how do we try and work with the Pacific around its longer-term economic, social resilience challenges, but also the level of debt burden that they may be carrying and, you know, what other opportunities do they have in terms of growing revenue for their country other than tourism? We all have to think about that. New Zealand took a big hit. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I would count New Zealand amongst those countries who are having to kind of reassess the value of that industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're all having to consider at different levels, we are all having to consider the um, impact of COVID and on our economy and what the new economy starts to look like. Can we have a little talk about COVID in the Pacific and specifically looking forward to this um, vaccination program and vaccines in the Pacific more generally and kind of I'd be interested to hear from you what New Zealand's role is there in kind of either brokerage or support or scientific kind of investments in terms of enabling countries to make themselves self-sufficient or how that kind of vaccination idea exists in the Pacific and what how New Zealand has a role there. Aiding in it, yeah. Thank you, Murdoch. Yeah, look, um, it was really important to us as we were undertaking our own approach to working through um, the purchase of vaccinations that we would uh, give a commitment uh, to some of the uh, countries in Polynesia that we would also cover uh, and support them. So we like I'm not an expert, right? But buying things in bulk is usually a better deal. So yes, you, and we factored into our purchase agreement across five vaccines uh, early on uh, that we would um, give and extend support to the Pacific. So we did do that bulk purchasing initiative. With we joined the Covax facility. And how does that work? Do you just ring them up and be like, 
Fellas, would you like some vaccine? We're, we're going down no, the shop. We've, we've got the Pacific Health Corridors, okay, which is the agreement between countries. Um, once we undertook our own process of purchasing a range of vaccines and supporting the COVAX facility, we then uh, undertook bilateral conversations with uh, some of the Pacific countries. So did Australia. We made sure not to overlap uh, and gave a, a, a commitment to support them with their rollout. Mm. We then since uh, had agreed that Pfizer would be New Zealand's vaccine of pre- uh, preference, put that through MedSafe and pretty much are now rolling out Pfizer to uh, the New Zealand population. The Pacific were looking at us and thinking across different vaccines. Um, AstraZeneca was kind of a preferred one because of the way that they could administer it. Um, but suffice to say, we've given an, an assurance through the COVAX facility and direct undertakings uh, that we would provide um, uh, vaccines to those countries for their rollout. When we considered the opening of the uh, border for the cooks, for example, part of that conversation was rolling out the vaccination program. Yeah. Uh, so that was a key element of the agreement. One interesting area is that currently in New Zealand, vaccination is being rolled out, but we see a higher number of Pacifica being vaccinated more so than Māori. Yes, um, initially because if I, if I understand the question, um, you know, the initial rollout of the vaccinations were to health um, and border uh, providers yeah. and, and border workers and the proportion of border workers, there was a high proportion of Pacific whānau there. Yeah. But the approach mattered because both for Pacific and Māori whānau, we said that the approach couldn't be just about targeting in the individuals if you wanted to give get maximum impact. Mm. If you're a border worker uh, working at the airport and you've and in your in your whānau you've got a co you know your yeah. mum or dad or both and then your kids, which is highly that, likely, highly yeah. likely intergenerational household. Then it makes sense not just to do the border work, but to do the whole household, yep. the whānau. So you know we are trying to promote a different approach for Māori and Pacific whānau because we've got to find what works to get maximum impact. There is a level of vaccine hesitancy too amongst New Zealanders, right? I mean, no vaccine is just the you know the medicine. It's a whole a vaccination program is an exercise in trust, really, isn't it? You know, absolutely. And when we think about ten years of research truncated to to create a vaccine minutes. for COVID, scientifically amazing, you know, but it takes amazing. a long time to build trust in that. Amazing, and you know, many New Zealanders didn't mind us being kind of somewhat behind other countries in their rollout because they mm. could say, "Oh, you know, what's happening there?" And we yeah. saw Pfizer's got the most kind of public assurance. It's definitely been accredited through MedSafe. I think for, for, for New Zealanders, they are looking far further afield and saying, what's their experience? And then, Which is absolutely that, a that luxury. Gives, that it absolutely is. It gives them assurance as, um, when we undertake our programme. Look, we're, we're hoping that for the rest of New Zealand, um, that the bulk of our uh, purchasing agreement for Pfizer will come through in around about July and by the third quarter, will be rolling out to uh, the broader population. So that's our plan for this year. But be without a shadow of a doubt, this uh, COVID situation will last for most of this, for all of this year and, and part of next year. I think also, I mean, apart from the illness itself, I think it's a fool's errand to think that we're going to see the end of the impacts of this pandemic for a long time. Well, you know, that. You know, if you read all the, the articles and the research, 
they're talking now about long COVID, so right. you can recover from COVID and have this, the the long term impacts of COVID with you for for a while. How, how long we don't know, but it is for a while. So I think that's right. We've just got to find a way to live with COVID as best we can. Um, assure our people um, of the first rollout, which is what we're going through, public rollout of vaccinations, and then learn to adjust ourselves as the potential of global pandemics becomes more frequent than we ever would have imagined. And I think, you know, that that's uh, hopefully as we kind of able to catch our breath from that kind of critical um, disease moment and thinking about how we are operating as global citizens to examine our tolerance for that and do, do we want to live in this kind of um, high-risk pandemic environment or do we want to reframe our relationships globally at, but also with the world around us to kind of dial that risk back down to a level that we can all kind of manage, you know? Well, I think those are really important considerations, some of which will be a part of APEC, actually, because we, if we think about... Uh, how again? Do you want to spell out of, what that is? Ten, for... Yep. How ten years of research was truncated to create a vaccine, getting supply chains right, and all of that. Um, it's an ideal opportunity, um, given that we're hosting APEC, which is an economic forum uh, for um, APEC economies to participate in. Um, and often the focus has been solely trade, but COVID enables us to think beyond trade to how we operate differently in this new environment. So we'll take this um, uh, this opportunity as, as the hosts uh, to be able to um, uh, innovate uh, the way in which we're uh, working together um, based on our COVID experiences, and we're looking forward to that. The difficulty, though, is often APEC is held in countries, mm. and this time, or oh, the previous time in this year, uh, will be two years now that we've experienced hosting APEC um, on digital platforms. Really difficult, mm. really difficult. We'll see how it goes. I guess that I want, I'm curious about what is, I mean, I think we've all experienced that what is lost in those digital meetings in the sense of, yeah, okay, we can get through the agenda, but as we're on our way there or waiting for the lift or whatever, we don't catch up. And And I'm wondering what is the kind of, foreign ministry level loss that happens when you don't have those kind of incidental conversations last question minister yeah well they call it the side conversations you know the um side meetings and things like that where you get the richness of understanding another country's priorities what's top of mind and therefore what what's possible in terms of negotiating you also don't get those really great photos where everyone is is dressed in their kind of shirt formal gear yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so yeah you do meet you you miss that opportunity but people make the best of what they've got and what we've been able to do as hosts is ensure that there are a range of different conversations throughout the whole year leading up to the leaders meeting in november that will help build a really good set of um, high-level principles that can be implemented around um, uh, to improve the APEC economy situation. That's a real rough kind of <laughs> simplified um, uh, and quick um, response. But look, if, if I can put it like this, what APEC will deliver New Zealand and vice versa to the, back to the APEC economies is an opportunity to take the learnings from COVID 
and find what we did really well and try and improve that in a very systematic way. What it will also do is enable us to innovate um, uh, and socialise some of our objectives around climate change, around digital trade, uh, and that's going to be important. And the new thing for New Zealand is that we will insert a conversation around Indigenous economic inclusion. And with that, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for your corridor, Minister. We'll talk again soon. Kilda, Kilda. Aku mihinui ki te reo irirangi te motu. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.